Today's conversation with Mike Robbins reminds me of the power of authenticity. He is so embodied, relatable, and full of wisdom. He opens up about everything from an injury that ended his MLB career early, his own mental health struggles, and how he was so inspired to dedicate his career to helping others. He found the process at a time later in life when he needed deep family healing. He then shares the healing power of so many different aspects of the process. Hope you enjoy and are as inspired by Mike as I was after our conversation together. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Liz Severin, and on this podcast, we engage in conversation and learn from Hoffman graduates. We'll dive deep into their journeys of self-discovery and explore how the process transformed their internal and external worlds. They share how their spirit and light now burn brighter in all directions of their lives. Their love's everyday radius. Hi, everybody. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing and speaking and getting to know um, Mike Robin. So hi, Mike. Hey, Liz. How are you? I'm doing well. I could introduce you, but I would actually love uh, for you to give us a little bit of background on who you are and what you do in the world. Oh, geez. Well, that's kind of like a really simple question, but a very loaded one, I think, for all of us. What do I do in the world? Well, uh, I talk a lot. So I actually have a podcast of my own. And for the last uh, almost 22 years, I have been a professional speaker. So I deliver keynotes and workshops and seminars. Most of the work I do is in the corporate world for big companies like Google and Wells Fargo and Microsoft and Schwab and eBay. And I've written a few books on topics like appreciation and authenticity and leadership and teamwork. So those are the things that I usually get invited in to uh, speak to people and teams and leaders about inside of these big companies that we partner with. So that's a little sort of nutshell of of what I do in the world. But I I came about doing this work, though, Liz, in kind of an interesting way. I I actually grew up here in the Bay Area where I still live. I grew up in Oakland and I played uh, baseball all growing up as a kid and was pretty good at it because I actually got drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees didn't end up signing a contract with the Yankees because I got an opportunity to play baseball in college at Stanford. So I went to Stanford and played baseball there and then got drafted out of Stanford by the Kansas City Royals and did sign a pro contract at that time. And the way it works in professional baseball here in North America, you get drafted by a major league team like the Yankees or the Royals or any of the other 30 teams in the major leagues. You have to go into the minor leagues and there's a whole bunch of levels you got to kind of work your way up to get to the major leagues. And unfortunately for me, not an uncommon story, but I got injured. I was a pitcher and I tore ligaments in my elbow when I was still in the minor leagues at 23 years old. And then two years, three surgeries later, was forced to retire from baseball when I was 25, but it started when I was seven. So it was a pretty big personal challenge to overcome, but taught me a ton about life and growth and adversity and healing and all kinds of things. But I had also become really fascinated by some of the human and team dynamic aspects of playing sports. And then when I got my first, you know, like real job after baseball, I was working for an internet company in the late nineties in sales. I wasn't all that interested in online ad sales and the internet for, for the sake of it, but had just taken a bunch of 
personal growth workshops outside of work. And then that coupled with kind of looking at a lot of the dynamics within the team and the company that I worked for. And I just sort of thought maybe I have something to contribute to this. So that's sort of what got me on the path of wanting to try to teach and speak and coach and and work with people. So it's been quite a journey over the last couple of decades, but that's kind of how I got started doing what I'm doing. I mean, beyond fascinating, incredible. I could not have introduced you any better of a way, but yeah, what a fascinating story, especially kind of taking it back to baseball. So take us back 25 and your career is over. It was, I mean, well, you know, so I grew up single mom in Oakland. We didn't have a lot of money, huge sports fans. My mom was actually a PE teacher and she was the one that taught me how to play baseball when I was a kid because my dad wasn't around. And I liked playing baseball, but I also really liked being good at it. And I liked that I got a lot of attention for it. I'm a, I'm a three on the Enneagram. So, you know, it's like achievement performance. I'm like, Ooh, I'm good at this thing. And people seem to think it's important. So this is a way to get love and attention. And I did enjoy the game itself, but I, you know, was so sort of goal oriented and driven that once I realized I was actually good, like high school time, it's like, Oh, I could probably play in college. Oh, I might be able to play professionally. Then it just became a big part of my identity. I wasn't just Mike. I was Mike, the baseball player, um, you know, went to Stanford and got drafted by the Yankees. And then, so when I was in the minor leagues with Kansas City, now I had gotten injured my senior year in high school the first time. So I hurt my arm and didn't really know what it was. And then my freshman year in college, I missed the whole season and had an operation. They couldn't quite figure out what it was, but I was dealing with a decent amount of pain. So the reality that like this might not work out was very much present in my mind, but had a couple good years in college and then got drafted by the Royals and signed. And then it was like, hey, I want to make it to the major leagues. I want to make a bunch of money and get famous. And like, this will be, you know, the answer to all of these problems from growing up. I'll take care of my mom. We'll have some money, all that stuff. And um, getting hurt and then the series of surgeries that followed and then coming to the realization that this wasn't going to happen for me was devastating and heartbreaking. You know, and I had basically played baseball for 18 of the first 25 years of my life. So when I was forced to walk away from it, it was like, who the heck am I if I'm not a baseball player? So it was hard. It was really hard and definitely, you know, sent me down some pretty dark paths at at that age, as you can imagine. And then landed in, you said, internet sales? Yeah. So I get a job, you know, it's the late nineties, moved back home to the Bay area. It's like dot-com boom time. I get a job working in ad sales for this internet company. I mean, I don't know. I barely know how to turn on a computer and they like, give me this job. And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever, I, I guess like, you know, but the thing was like the, the previous few years I had gotten really, really depressed when I was in college, my junior year at Stanford, like suicidally depressed. And it was super scary because I mean, anybody who's dealt with depression or mental illness knows how scary and painful that is. But I come from a family with a ton of mental illness. My dad had pretty severe bipolar disorder and so many people in my family struggled with depression and anxiety and bipolar, all kinds of things. And everybody was on medication. It was this thing and it was like this big, I didn't totally understand it, you know, as a kid. I mean, you know, what does it mean that my dad's manic depressive and he's like not around and can't really engage? And, you know, I don't know what that means at seven years old. By the time I was in college, I understood it a little bit more, but it was the mid 90s and people weren't talking about mental health in the way they talk about it now. So I had a lot of shame around it and a lot of fear because I was like, oh shit, this is going to be 
the rest of my life is just struggling in and out of depressions and like and so i spent some time in college and then all the the years i was playing professional baseball i was kind of going in and out of episodes of depression and just really scared about that and now with baseball over it was like i didn't even have an area to focus like that's where i could focus a lot of my attention and my anxiety was like i'll be really good at this thing and that'll somehow maybe make me feel better which it didn't really but that was sort of the you know story in my brain <laughs> and so what ended up happening was like i had to come face to face with now i don't know who i am in the world and what i'm going to do and i'd never really had that thought you know, even though I was only 25 years old, like I was pretty clear and pretty focused from a very young age. And I went through a really bad breakup and I'm still dealing with some of these mental health challenges. So I was like, oh God, I'm kind of a hot mess here. Like I need help. And so what I got more into was like, I was in therapy, but I just, my uncle who was a therapist told me about an organization called Landmark Education, which is a, you know, sort of modern incarnation or he told me at the time of the S training, which I know, you know, there's some connections all the way back to Bob Hoffman and how that all came about. But like I got really involved in doing workshops through Landmark and that sort of and found out there was this whole world of like personal growth, but also very specifically like transformation. And that really helped me both with my transition from baseball, but also with a lot of the mental health challenges I was dealing with. And not only did it help me personally, but then I got really excited and turned on. Like, I want to do more of this work myself. And I don't know, maybe I could actually teach some of this stuff. Could I help other people? Could I, you know, I was young and inexperienced, but I thought, I feel like I have some kind of interest and passion and maybe even some talent to do this. So that was kind of the deeper sort of process for me around starting to do the work that I've done now for the last 22 years it was very personal. And it's kind of like, I mean, I, I did the Hoffman process, you know, back in 2016, but it would be sort of like someone coming to the process as I'm sure Liz, you did and everyone who teaches it and going, oh my gosh, this like changed my life. I think I want to do more of this work and I love to be able to get trained to actually teach this. Totally. And that, I mean, that, I mean, just to think at 25, you were starting to take, you know, a hard look at yourself in those areas and the insights is just incredible to think that that then manifested into this discovery. And now I'm assuming, I mean, when did you write your first book? How old were you? I started my business in 2001. I was 26, about turned 27. And I started speaking and coaching at that time. And I had the idea for my first book, which is called Focus on the Good Stuff. It came out in 2007. So I was probably 32 when I got the book deal for that and then wrote it that year and it came out. I was 33. But that had been kind of a long time coming. And I like <laughs> that book got rejected by like 25 publishers over the span of five years. And I just kept hearing no, no, no. And it was an interesting journey just to go about that whole process. Um, and it was actually after, after the birth of our older daughter, Samantha, who's now 16. She was born. And then about a week later, I said to my literary agent at the time who kept getting all the rejections. And finally, she was like, you know, I don't think it's going to happen on this one. And I was like, screw it. I'm ready to write this book. If I have to self-publish it, I will. And then my agent said, well, hold on a second. Let me ask a few more publishers before we decide to go that route. And then she called me back like three days later. She's like, you're not going to believe it. All three of them are interested. And it was the same book proposal that we'd been getting rejected the whole time. <laughs> but something in me had shifted. And I was like, I'm ready. And I can look back on that, Liz, now and 
with hindsight and perspective and a little more wisdom, I can see it literally wasn't until that moment. You know, people talk to me all the time about, how do I get a book published? And there's all the practical stuff, but then there's like the emotional and even spiritual metaphysical part of it. It's like, well, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to go about it, but I think it's when you're ready, you'll know and it'll manifest. It's kind of how a lot of things happen in life, you know? Yeah. Well, if you could articulate it a little more, what are you looking back? What do you think some of the the qualities or what, what shifted in you? I think up to that point, for me, at least I was waiting for some kind of external validation or approval or, you know, I mean, in some practical way, you got to get a publisher to say, yes, they'll publish the book. So that does have to happen. But I was waiting for someone to say, sort of put a magic wand over my head and say, you're ready to write a book and publish a book. And like that wasn't happening because that's not the way it really works. And it was just something in me. I actually got a little pissed off, to be honest, finally. And it wasn't that I was pissed about the rejection, although that didn't feel very good. But I was like tired of waiting. I have something to say and I'm going to say it. I mean, the world that exists now for what it's worth, not to get too far down the rabbit hole of publishing and all that, there's so many more platforms in which we can, I mean, even you and I talking on a podcast like this, didn't exist in 2006 when I got that book deal. So the way that we can get our voice out into the world and publish something and write something or say something is so much easier now than it was then. Although there's a ton of noise out there these days, so it's harder to kind of have people pay attention to it. But at the same time, like 10, 15, 20 years ago, there were only certain avenues you kind of had to go through if you wanted to put your voice out into the world in that way. And that was one of them. But I finally had realized like I was just waiting for the powers that be to tell me you're ready as opposed to really kind of stepping into that and claiming it myself. Yeah. One of the books, right? Authenticity, just finally realizing for yourself, I'm going to do this one way or the other. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, look, I mean, there's a lot we could unpack in that itself, but I do think like if we're really, we really have something to say, we really have something we want to put out into the world and manifest. It happens when, (laughs) when we're really ready to do it. And it doesn't usually happen before that. Well, then fast forward us to um, the process. You said 2016 is when you did the process. When did you know you were ready to kind of go to the process? Well, I heard about the Hoffman process, gosh, I mean, probably at least 10 years, if not almost 15 years before I did it. And I I will say to people sometimes, I mean, people listening to this have either done the process or in, in thinking about it or whatever, like... In the early days when I first found out about it, it was like, oh my gosh, I want to do this. I'm so excited to do it. And like, I couldn't really afford it. And then by the time I could afford it, I couldn't find the time to do it. So for me, there was just sort of the practical reality of making it happen. You know, once we started having babies and I'm traveling all over the country. And anyway, the, the long and the short of it was I actually wanted to do the process for a number of years leading up to it, but it was finding the right time. And then in 2016, my sister Lori died early that year of cancer, and she struggled with ovarian cancer for four years. And it had just been really, really hard. And it had come on the heels of our mom had passed away of lung cancer nine months before Lori got diagnosed. And so we went through this. My sister went through a really hard divorce. My mom got diagnosed with cancer and died very quickly after the diagnosis. My sister and I go through the whole process of her dying and unpacking so much both emotionally and practically and like selling the childhood home that we grew up in. And then Lori gets diagnosed with cancer and we go through just a four-year pretty gnarly experience. And then she passes away. And I just felt like uh, for a lot of reasons, I need some time away. I need to 
unplug from my life as busy and full as it is and just go deeper into some of my own healing. And, you know, I do a lot of, <laughs> I jokingly, but seriously say like, I have a team of people <laughs> that work with me and have for years, therapists and counselors and coaches. And like, I need kind of a lot of support and always have, but doing the process really felt like it was time. And at the end of 2016, I was able to carve out the week and Michelle, my wife was totally supportive and I went and did it. And it was really, you know, looking at all my patterns and looking at different things. But for me, it was like, can I make some deeper peace with my family of origin? And is there a deeper level of healing around my grief, which, which is what really led me to the process? Yeah, because I can imagine just being in the work that you are and sort of your knowing what we now know of just how you came about the work. Some of Hoffman was you know, familiar to you, but it sounds like this diving deeper into family, you know, trauma, history of origin, that is really what guided you there. Yeah, absolutely. My friend, Rich Dutra St. John, who's one of the co-founders of a great organization called Challenge Day, who's done a ton of personal growth work and has been a great mentor to me, said to me years ago when he talked about Hoffman, he's like, it's the best family of origin healing program I've ever done and maybe just the best overall personal growth experience I've ever had. Um, and for all the stuff that I've done over the years in the different workshops and retreats, and I, I don't think I'd ever done anything where I went somewhere and I was fully off the grid and unplugged and fully immersed in the experience in the way that it happens at Hoffman that I, of the many things that were wonderful about it for me, was that just to you know unplug from the world and just go within into my own process, no pun intended, but like to really do some of that work. And it was phenomenal for me on so many levels. I love hearing that too, because I'm I'm in the middle of, you know, meeting students that are coming for an upcoming process and the amount of nerves around and hesitation and, you know, trepidation, all of that around disconnecting from the phone, from the world. And then I find, you know, I'm always like, let's check in on how you're feeling about this, you know, at the end of the week or even the middle of the week, because I do, I hear from students time and time again, it's like, wow, that was one of the most powerful things is I don't give myself that kind of time, that kind of attention. Totally. And I think, I mean, I would imagine you know, for me now thinking about it six years later since when I did the process, you know, and just going back, I mean, it seems like every month and every year that goes by, for better or worse, like our lives are so consumed through our devices. You know, most everyone listening to us right now is probably listening on their phone. And so I think about my phone as this beautiful device that can connect me with the world and I can publish on it and I can talk to people I love and I can see what's happening in the world and I can share photos and memories and all these wonderful things. And it takes me out of my life all the time in ways that I'm aware of, in some ways I'm not even aware of. And so that in and of itself, yeah, turning off the phone and turning it in at the process was like super scary and uncomfortable and like, oh gosh, you know, we have young kids at home at the time and all the things. And <laughs> for me, at least, I remember getting it handed back to me and I'm like, I don't think I want this thing. Can you hang on to it for another at least couple of days? I'm good before I have to re-engage with the world. So Totally. We put them out there and they just sit there. <laughs> you know, I'm like, don't, don't forget your phone on the way out. But people are like, I don't want it. I don't want to turn it on. Totally. And, you know, and but but I think it's like that aspect. Again, it's so simple on the one hand, and there's so many different places. We don't have to go to the Hoffman process, turn off our phones or put them away or 
put them in a drawer or disconnect from, but so hard to do that. Um, and it's not impossible. It's not like I can't have, you know, a meaningful conversation or a beautiful experience in my life with my phone on and in my pocket. I mean, that can still happen too, but there is something that's so important about being able to disconnect from that and, and super challenging. I know for me personally, and just about everybody I know and interact with. Yeah. And I, I think what you're saying of, you know, it bring, it can bring connection, but it can also bring the disconnection, you know, where patterns come up or the numbing or the coping comes out. And so that's what I always find so, such a powerful reminder when that's not there, where do you go? Totally. Well, and another thing, just interesting, like when, when I went and did the process, it was also about a month after the election in 2016. So remember just how crazy things were and that election had been so crazy and the outcome, you know, even people who were pleased with the outcome, like nobody expected that that was going to happen. And so there's the chaos and all the intensity and stuff going on in our own lives, but then there's also stuff going on in the world. And it was so interesting to go up there and do the process at that time and disconnect from you know, my own life in the day-to-days of my life and my business, but also all the news and everything happening. It was a trip, but, but also, you know, really liberating and important, I think, for me. And I always love to ask uh, podcast guests, when is a moment in the process that you really kind of landed there or it broke you open or just something that really sticks out in your memory from that week? There were a number of things, but what just popped up into my mind when you asked that was at one point, there was a woman in the process who kind of looked like my sister, Lori. I'd got, I'd had a few conversations with her and felt, and at one point I just went over to her and I said something and I, I'm, I probably freaked her out, but I was like, you know, you look like my sister and you remind me of my sister. And then I just started sobbing and she gave me a hug and I was like, I really miss her. And as simple as that might sound, like giving myself permission to just feel the sadness and the grief and the like, I miss my big sister. There was, I don't know, was something really healing about that for me. And she said, and she didn't, you know, we had only met a few days earlier. I like, I, of course you do. I know you do. And it was like giving me permission that it was okay. That for me was a really, a really powerful moment. And it just felt like, wow, you know, that there was some sense of being in that circle and in that space there that I didn't have to carry that all by myself or something, if that makes sense. Totally. I mean, I know another thing I love about Hoffman, <laughs> but really is that that group energy, because it can, it just is this reminder that while you can, you know, start your journey or do some healing individually, there's so much power in taking that leap or going on that journey with a room full of people that start off as strangers and before you know it, have just infinite lessons to teach you and uncover about yourself. It's a, part of why I find the work so powerful. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, and also just realizing not that I didn't know this before the process, but there was a level of, we're all just carrying a whole bunch of stuff. And yeah, of course it's personal and it's related to each of our lives and my whole story and my parents and my sister, all the things, but it's kind of like there's a universality to some of it, even in all of its uniqueness that I just love. I mean, it's one of the things I love about my own work. And when I'm reminded of like the more personal, the more universal, the more 
you know, the deeper we go into the truth of what our experience is, the more it's like, oh yeah, you feel like that? I feel like that. And it's that terminal uniqueness they talk about in 12-step, which is like, can easily get to be this trap for me. And I think for a lot of us thinking like, oh, I'm the only one that feels like this. I must be weird. There must be something wrong with me. But being around other people, like, nope, we're all just bumbling our way through being human as best we can. <laughs> Absolutely right. The shared, the the common humanity, the shared humanity of it all, and I think that that's just so important. To even just as you were talking about, you know, it it brings us together, and it also just reminds us that our, our patterns, or you know, our dark side, whatever, wants to keep us isolated and small. And the more we can just show up bigger and brighter, and in a room full of people, it's like, oh, actually, in a good way, I'm not that unique, or my pain, my suffering you know, isn't just mine. Other people have shared it and seen it. And it I just, so healing. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I would say for me too, I mean, the biggest thing, my experience of the process, my sister had just died earlier that year. So that was really up for me at the time. So I was processing through a lot of grief and, you know, both my parents had passed away. My dad died back in 2001 when I was 27 and my mom died in 2011 when I was 37. And so a way in which I would say, and even six years later, looking back on it, there was a level of compassion and forgiveness and empathy that came to me in a really powerful way through doing the process related to both of my parents and my sister. And again, I had done quite a bit of work in that realm with them, but there's just something about that when I think about my parents now. And I have my moments, you know, it's like my, my dad basically left when I was three and wasn't really around for much of my life at different times. You know, and I have, I'm the father of two teenage daughters. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I will say to Michelle, my wife, like, I go to the well and there's nothing there. I, I look on the hard drive and there's no files. Like, what do you, what's a dad supposed to do in this situation? No idea. Right. And I think in the past, I would have probably wasted some time and energy being pissed at my dad or like, well, he didn't teach me that, you know, but I just kind of will laugh sometimes about it in this way of, well, of course, like there's nothing there because I didn't experience anything there, but hey, cool, I get to make it up myself and figure it out. Or I get to reach out to people in my life now who I know, who I love and trust. And it doesn't have that emotional charge for me in the same way. Or I think about certain things, you know, my mother was who raised me and I have a lot of love and appreciation for my mother. And, you know, my mother was a human being with all of her flaws and foibles and limitations. And you know, I just feel this sense of when I think about them, I don't feel like I have this Pollyanna, overly idealized versions of them. But at the same time, I also don't feel like I have a lot of energy around blame. And and it sort of felt like before I did the process, a lot of that was a mental construct for me. And after the process, it was much more of an emotional and spiritual experience, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. And um, what I hear in that too is just this undercurrent of self-compassion. Yeah. Although I will say that that one continues to be the real challenge for me. Um, and it's funny because literally one of the books I wrote <laughs> back in, came out in 2014, it's called Nothing Changes Until You Do, is about self-compassion. So it's something that I'm interested in, passionate about, know how important it is, loved all the stuff and in the process about that. And it's still like, I find that to be the hardest for me, is to really go to that place of acceptance and forgiveness and compassion and love for myself. So that's an ongoing kind of work in progress for me, for sure. 
Can we dive into that a little deeper? Because I hear this all the time from people. And I mean, I, it's a question I ask and struggle with at times too. What is it about self-compassion that feels difficult or, you know, still challenging at times for you? I would say, I mean, the concept's not difficult at all. And I mean, again, like many things, like I can talk to you about how important it is for you to be compassionate with yourself. Come on, Liz, let's go. Like, Yeah, I got you. You you, you know what I mean? Like, you love yourself and you're so amazing and you should see that and know that and feel that and you don't have to be perfect. All the things, right? I can say all the things, I can write all the things, I know all the things, I got all the affirmations. But when push comes to shove down deep within me, it's like that dark side for me, there's just a lot of really sort of deep conversation of like, and yeah, you better do this or don't do that. Or you suck with this or you screwed that up or, you know, this like pretty harsh inner critic, inner sort of dialogue gremlin, as I used to call it in my early days of coaching that just is like still, and I'm a three on the Enneagram. So again, it's a lot about achievement and performance. So there's just this kind of drive in me that still thinks, even though I know better and have learned this many, 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 many times over, that if I just accomplish that next thing, whatever that next thing is, that's going to be the thing that's going to have me go, okay, you're good now. You can relax. you know. And it seems to be this sort of insatiable, never-ending cycle if I'm not prepared. And I'll look, I'll go through phases. And I would say for, for what it's worth, the last couple of years, I think with COVID and with everything that's gone on in my own life personally and my business and just in the world, it's like been a challenge for me. I, I, I wrote something recently about the, the difference between vigilance and discipline. And I realized that for years, I've just sort of thought of vigilance as like more intense discipline. But in reality, for me at least, vigilance is this really harsh, very shame-based, very like, I can't not do this thing. Whereas discipline is a little more of a choice and like, hey, I choose to take care of myself in this way or practice this or, you know, get up in the morning and meditate or, you know, write at this time or whatever. But there's more space to it. And so for me, the challenge is around like the obsessiveness that thinks I have to do 58 things in order to earn my worth and, and self-compassion as opposed to just accept it and, and grant it, if you will. Yeah. What are some practices that you sort of lean on or go to in that in that realm. Yeah, I mean I you know my meditation practice has been and continues to be super important to me. You know, journaling is really important to me and something like when I do those things as simple as they are just just huge for me and like, you know, moving my body every day if I can whether I just go on a short little walk or I do something a little more intense. Like those kind of basics, you know, I remember years ago, Elizabeth Gilbert, who I love, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love and a bunch of other great books. She, I, I saw something that she did. It, was a, it wasn't a TED Talk. It was some just short thing. And she was talking about as a creative person, she was just like, you have to take care of your animal. And I was like, what? Meaning like, you know, like the vessel, if you're tired and you're, you know, annoyed and upset and f- like flustered all the time, like if you're wanting to create something in the world you're not going to be able to do it as effectively. And, and it was interesting when she said it because she was coming at it from a creativity perspective. But what resonated with me was just thinking about myself as an athlete. And it was like, there was so much stuff I did for all those years playing baseball that I just like had to take care of my body in certain ways so that I was capable of being able to go out on the field to compete. And again, I have to be careful in the way that I think about this to balance it so I don't get super obsessive or like vigilant about it. 
but I still think, I mean, I'm 48 years old now. I haven't played baseball. You know, the last time I pitched in a game, I think I was 23, but I still think of myself as an athlete in some ways for better or worse. And in that way, it's like, what do I need to do to prepare myself to be in the game of life? Um, whether it's my work or my family or my marriage or, you know, being a father or whatever. And so again, a lot of those things, and even like going to Hoffman or going to do Q2 or, you know, when I go away, sometimes I'll even go up, there's a place up in Calistoga where I'll go right, but that's also where I go and sometimes we'll retreat, both Michelle and my wife and I will go there, but taking time to unplug and get off the treadmill, so to speak, which has been a little more challenging over the last couple of years in the midst of COVID and everything else, but doing that so that I can actually unplug and recharge and kind of go a little deeper and pay a little more attention to how I'm feeling and what's happening. Those things are really important to me. I really just appreciate your honesty around all of this because what I hear is just the the honesty of I still have patterns and I'm still working on them and I will continue to work on them. And I think that's just such an important reminder. The evolution, the journey doesn't stop. For sure. I mean, and look, I, I everybody's different and we're at different stages and phases of life and, and different cycles. And I feel like we do cycle through things. I mean, sometimes for me with some of my patterns, it's like, I'll see some big shifts and I'll feel really, oh, like, wow, like I'm free of that. And then it'll show up again. And it's like, shit, I thought I was done with this. Like what the, you know, and if I'm not careful, I can go into that super self-critical, like, oh, you, you don't know what you're doing, or you thought you were over this and you're not. And as opposed to just like, oh, I'm revisiting this now in a different way at a different level. I don't know why, but you know, the ones that kind of come up time and time again, it's like, okay, more work to do here. For me, both as a human being and a student of life and my own growth, as well as a teacher in the work that I do, I've always been drawn towards authenticity, not just like as a topic of something I've written about, but just as someone who's lived my life with a decent amount of anxiety and insecurity at times. Like, am I doing this right? Is what the hell's going on? Is anybody else feeling this? Like, am I crazy? And just trying to reinforce, like, that's one of the things that draws me to things like the Hoffman process, where it's like you get in a room with people who start to get real and you realize, oh, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. I'm just dealing with my own version of humanness. And at times it can be painful and challenging and confusing. And when we all sit around and tell the truth about our real experience, I feel like it it's super liberating. And it's a reminder that like growth is in a straight line up that I just like learn this and learn this and learn this. And I get to some place of, you know, um, enlightenment and I'm all good. I don't know anybody like that. And I know some pretty amazing, (laughs) pretty evolved humans, but like most people when they get real, it's like, yeah, I was doing great. And then I ran into a wall and fell down and was like, "Uh Oh, I'm screwed. And then I had to get back up and figure out what was going on. And, you know, I mean, and I think again, over the last couple of years, I've just been really humbled, as I think a lot of us have. Three years ago, if I had said to you, hey, guess what's about to happen? You would have thought I was crazy. And you also would have thought, like, there's no way that could happen in the world. And if it did, there's no way we'd be okay. And I think, you know, to whatever degree everybody listening has been impacted by the pandemic, it's like, this has been a lot for just about everybody I know. And even the people I know who've done relatively well during this time, most of them are like either embarrassed to admit that out loud or just kind of like, walking around a little bit on eggshells, like, I don't know what I did to deserve just having a relatively good pandemic, but I'm not going to say anything out loud because I don't want to jinx it. You know what I mean? But most of us are dealing with some level, if not a significant level of trauma in general, but especially just over the last couple of years. And I don't know that we're going to be able to fully unpack it for a while because we're still not all the way through it. 
And I say that not as like to be negative or pessimistic or woe is me or blame the circumstances, but I just think it's like when there's a fire, you know, the smoke goes in the air and it impacts everybody. When there's a storm, you know, the house can get flooded and that doesn't mean anybody's screwed up. It just means that's what's going on. We have to make our way through the various storms. And this has been a pretty big storm for most of us. Yeah. And something else that um, I wanted to circle back on was uh, the topic of authenticity. And what advice would you give for someone that were to say, I just don't know my authentic self or how do I find my authentic self? I look, I think that's a good question. I think that's a very real, honest question. I think it often starts with just telling the truth about what we do know. And sometimes what we do know is I don't know, right? I don't know what my authentic self is. I don't know what's really real. That in and of itself, ironically, is a, usually a pretty real statement. I'm confused about this or I'm not clear about this. You know, so it starts by, like a lot of authenticity is curiosity and inquiring into what's real and what's true. And the reality is, as weird as it sounds, it's like it evolves over time. I mean, one of the things you, know, you were asking me about my first book that I wrote when I was 32 years old, and sometimes I'll read some of that back and I'll cringe because I'm like, I can't believe I thought that, or I can't believe I wrote that. And it's not just like I thought it and I said it. It's like in a book that's published out in the world that I can't take back, right? But again, I think that stops us sometimes from really saying what we feel in any given moment, some fear. And now again, we're all publishing, whether we're writing books or not with social media and everything for better or worse. And it's like, oh my gosh. Have you ever had something pop up in the little Facebook memories 10 years ago today and you read it and you're like, geez, it could be a positive thing or it could be something like, I can't believe I said that or I did that or I thought that or whatever. We evolve as human beings. So for people who struggle to know like what's true and what's real, it's kind of a moving target. And I do think doing things like the Hoffman process, doing things that have us inquire more deeply into who we are and unpack some of our patterns, I think it's important because we're sort of peeling back the onion all the time. You know, so it's not like there's that great saying, you know, there is no way to peace, peace is the way. I often say there is no way to authenticity, like authenticity is the way. It's about being real and being true. And the things that we believe when we believe them are totally true. Like we're raising adolescents right now, which is both incredibly exciting and super challenging, pandemic and otherwise. But just like I watch and listen to our girls, our daughters, who I absolutely adore. But, and I say this with love and respect to them and every other teenager on the planet. Oh my God, they're insane. And I mean that because like they say things all the time and I look in their eyes, I'm like, they really mean this. This is really true. And like an hour later or a day later, they'll say the opposite thing and it's really true. And I'm like, wow, I remember feeling that way as an adolescent. And we're trying to figure ourselves out at that stage of life. Like we still are much past adolescence, but it's like, you know, so again, that's a long sort of convoluted way to answer your question is that sometimes we don't really know what's real and what's true. And we have to just keep asking and keep looking and keep digging. And we start to get closer to the truth and you can kind of feel it. So for me, it's just like, how do we create spaces where we can really tap into what we think and what we feel and what's true for us? And the other thing that I would say is that what can really help, and you talked about it earlier in terms of the group process at Hoffman, but just being in environments and being around people where it's safe to be real, where it's safe to tell the truth. And some of us weren't raised in those environments. Some of us aren't used to being in those environments. You know, one of the things I do is when I go in and work with companies, like I'm working with 
sometimes pretty big, high-level senior leaders, executive leadership teams. And we sit sometimes in a conference room or sometimes at a offsite location or wherever we are. But like one of the primary things that I do with these teams that I work with is just give people permission to tell the truth about what they really think and how they really feel. There's a really simple exercise that I do with teams that I learned from my friend, Rich Dutra St. John, who started that organization challenge day many years ago. But it's like, we just do a process an exercise called, if you really knew me. And I always start, I set it up and talk about what we're doing. And it's like, we're lowering the water line on the iceberg. And it's like, I just start by saying, if you really knew me, you'd know this about me. And then I just share three or four things that are true for me in the moment that are vulnerable and authentic and just about life, about the moment, about the group, about business, about whatever. I mean, it's not like I don't plan it. It's just, if you really knew me in this moment, here's what you'd know. Right. And it could be like, I'm feeling excited to be here, but also really nervous because like (laughs) you guys are super smart and intense and there's a lot going on and I hope I can be helpful. And I'm not sure if I'm going to be (laughs) like, I will literally say that. And they've paid me a lot of money to come up and help show up and help them. But I will tell the truth about like, I'm a little intimidated or, you know, whatever. Um, Not to get too weird or overly purpose. Like, you know, my wife and I just got in a huge fight and I'm like feeling bad about some of the things that I said. And I want to go and repair that. And I can't do that until later. So I'm holding that or whatever the heck it is, but just real, true. And then I open it up for them to share what's real and true for them. And again, it can often be awkward or weird at first, but once people start telling the truth, it's like you can feel it in the room. I don't have to know them to know if what they're saying is actually true and authentic. I can feel it like, oh yeah, that was real. (laughs) It landed over here in my body. I can feel that that person just told the truth. And what's amazing is it becomes this sort of energetic field, if you will, in the group that makes it safer and more conducive. And it creates more of what we call psychological safety. And again, you don't have to have a group around you to support you in order to do it. But finding yourself in groups where that is the case makes it that much easier for us to get in touch with what's real and what's true. Beautiful. I love just even circling back to that that statement. If you really knew me, you'd know this about me. That's something that just listeners can just ask themselves in the here and now and practice that. And one exercise, like even if you just do this on your own, if you just open up a page in your journal, if you happen to journal or you can do this electronically, but just at the very top of the page, just write, if you really knew me, dot, dot, dot. And then you don't have to even share it with anyone if you don't want to. But it's like, that's a way you could write in your journal, just tap into if we really knew you in this moment. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's going on down below the waterline of the iceberg, so to speak, for you? And that's a way to just start inquiring more deeply into what's real and what's true for me. And the thing is that like, you might be doing great right now, or you might be doing terrible, but one of the many beautiful things we talk about in the process is like emotional language and really expanding our capacity. You know, Brene Brown just wrote a great new book called Atlas of the Heart, where she talks a lot about this and language and distinction around different emotions. And that is interesting. You know, we ask each other, how are you? And people say, I'm fine, which is like, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) Like, how are you really? It's like, well, how are you feeling? And then getting into whatever that is, that helps us get a little more into what's real and what's true. I'm feeling excited or I'm feeling nervous or I'm feeling annoyed or I'm feeling exhausted or grateful or stop asking me, get out of my feeling defensive, you know, whatever. But it's like, that's a little more real than I'm fine or I'm great or I'm some judgment of how we are, you know? Yeah. Oh, I think I think that's just the first step of starting to kind of understand that inner line, landscape. We often say uh, at Hoffman on one of the days, "Fine" is feelings inside not expressed. 
So that in good, you know, and then I, I love it when students catch themselves and like, I'm good. I'm calm, you know, and it, and it's, I, it's funny because I'll, I'll be listening to myself and someone asks me, um, and I'll say, I'm good. And then I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I love that as a, a key step and even just a first step in, in authenticity and, and giving yourself the time to have that reflection. You know what helped me on that when I learned that in a different way in the process, which I really appreciated, I started, and I'm not always mindful of this, but when I am, I've started to just pay attention to my language so that I actually say things like, I feel, as opposed to I am. And it's subtle, but to me, it's like the statement of I am is like a declarative sort of a state of being. How are you? I am sad. I am happy. I am, right? But for me, it helped to just say, if someone says, you know, how are you? I'm feeling excited or sad or i'm feeling you know the the using the word feeling for me dropped me more into my heart and got me in touch with oh this is actually a temporary state of being and feeling just because i'm feeling sad right now or i'm feeling excited right now or i'm feeling you know annoyed or grateful whatever it's going to change but when i say i am that sort of fixes it for me i am i am angry right <laughs> it's like now and so for me it's just i feel like there's way more spaciousness around oh i feel excited right now or i feel happy and a little scared and curious and confused like usually for me if i'm really honest there's like five different feelings happening all at once and i'm which one's the dominant one i don't know but the moment i start to even language it they start to shift and change and move and it just reminds me like oh yeah on any given day i can feel happy and sad and grateful and excited and scared and annoyed and all the things <laughs> right like and that's actually how i want to live is like fully expressed and fully in that emotional state of being human, not just fine. I don't want to be fine. I don't even know what fine is. Well, Mike, I appreciate your time and vulnerability so much. This was such a beautiful conversation. So thanks again for sharing all your your wisdom and just really showing up and being present with us. Oh, you're welcome, Liz. Well, thanks for inviting me on. I'm super grateful for the conversation and just super grateful for the impact Hoffman's had on my life and my family. My wife did the process too, and I just love the whole Hoffman community. So it's an honor to get to talk to you. Mm, we love you. So thanks again. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.